Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Brown here. Glad you could join us today. Okay, so I remind you, you're listening to a recording provided for the use of those who are blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA of a copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. All right, let's get on to this first one. Unfortunately, an obituary from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, May 29, 2023. Richard S. Dick Gunther, May 6, 1925 to May 25, 2023. Husband, father, philanthropist, activist, businessman, investor. Richard spent his first seven years in Portland, Oregon. When his father died in 1933, he and his mother, Bertha Germain, moved to L.A., where he lived the remainder of his life. A 300 buller as a teenager, Richard was drafted at 18 and served for three years in the Pacific. Upon discharge from the Army, he re-entered UCLA and graduated with, uh, with an accounting degree. A telephone conversation fortuitously overheard overhead by his mother led to his first job with L.A. developer Dick Diller, who sent uh, then-25-year-old Richard to Hawaii with his young wife Lois Goldberg and their eight-month-old son to direct a residential development for the Navy. Upon his return to L.A., he spent the next 10 years building a housing primarily in the San Fernando Valley. He also began his long association with Jewish, Jewish community causes, joining the board of the Brandy's Barden Institute, where he served for 25 years. An encounter with cancer at age 34 set Richard on a new path of family, travel, and personal growth. By now a father of three sons, Richard found new success as an investor gaining more family time and deepening his engagement with progressive Jewish and political causes. He served as a delegate to the 1968 Democratic Convention. His donations landed him on uh, Richard Nixon's infamous en enemies list. Of his broad service in the Jewish community, Richard was most proud of his role as the first chair of uh, Project Renewal, a successful partnership between the L.A. Jewish Federation and Jerusalem's Musrara community. He served lengthy terms on the boards of Americans for Peace Now, where he was president at New Israel Fund and the L.A. Jewish Federation. He led the L.A. campaign to fund the exodus of Jews from Soviet Russia in the 1980s. Richard was an early investor and board chair of the Grameen Foundation USA, supporting the pioneering Bangladeshi microlender. As Richard's means increased, so did his philanthropy, leading to his investments such as the Gunther Depths of Space exhibit at the Griffith Observatory and the Gunther Hirsch Building, the first permanent home of Jewish Family Service of L.A. In midlife, Richard engaged in disciplined self-exploration, spending time at Esalen Institute, earning a Master's in Liberal Arts with a focus on midlife from USC, co-wrote Who Needs Midlife at Your Age, a humorous book, and participated in a men's peer counseling group of 30-plus years dura uh, duration. Richard loved to exercise, running a marathon at age 53, and skiing, playing tennis, and riding his bike into his 80s. He traveled extensively with his wife and family, including dozens of bicycle touring adventures, three high-altitude treks in Nepal and B Peru, and a trip to Antarctica. Richard also deeply valued personal relationships mentoring numerous young people and maintaining lifelong friendships with his and Lowe's L.A. cohort. His memoir, How High is Up, was published in 2009. At the end of his life, 
Richard was deeply grateful for the life he led above all his 75-year marriage. Richard is survived by his wife Lois, three sons, Daniel, Mark, and Krantz, Andrew, Teresa, Burns Gunther, and three grandchildren, Sophia, Aaron, and Sam, Melissa Philly. His granddaughter, Eva, predeceased him in 1997. We are blessed to have known him as husband, father, and friend. Donations in his honor can go to New Israel Fund, Jewish Family Service of LA, or the Democratic candidate of your choice. Funeral will be held at 11 a.m. Tuesday, May 30 at Leo Beck Temple, Los Angeles. Burial will be at 1.30 p.m. Wednesday, May 31st at Home of Peace Cemetery in Colma, California. That was Richard S. Dick Gunther, May 6, 1925 to May 25, 2023, from the obituary uh, no, section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, May 29, 2023. All right, now we move on to this one. From the Perspective section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, June 3rd, 2023, Documents Shed Light on Final Days of Jeffrey Epstein in Prison by Michael Sisak and Michael Balsamo, New York. Two weeks before ending his life, Jeffrey Epstein sat in the corner of his Manhattan jail cell with his hands over his ears, desperate to muffle the sound of a toilet that wouldn't stop running. Epstein was agitated and unable to sleep jail officials observed in records newly obtained by the Associated Press. He called himself a coward and complained that he was struggling to adapt to a life behind bars following his July 2019 arrest on federal sex trafficking and conspiracy charges. His life of luxury reduced to a concrete and steel cage. The disgraced financer was under psychological observation at the time for a suicide attempt earlier, days earlier that left his neck bruised and scraped. After a 31-hour stint on suicide watch, Epstein insisted he wasn't suicidal, telling a jail psychologist that he had a wonderful life and would be crazy to end it. On August 10, 2019, Epstein was dead. Nearly four years later, the AP has obtained more than 4,000 pages of documents related to Epstein's death from the Federal Bureau of Prisons under the Freedom of Information Act. They include a detailed psychological reconstruction of the events leading to Epstein's suicide, as well as his health history, internal agency reports, emails, memos, and other records. Taken together, uh, the documents obtained Thursday, obtained Thursday provide the most complete account to date of Epstein's detention and death and the chaotic aftermath. The records help to dispel the many conspiracy theories surrounding Epstein's suicide underscoring how fundamental failings at the Bureau of Prisons, including severe staff shortages and employees cutting corners, contributed to Epstein's death. They shed new light on the federal prison agency's muddled response after Epstein was found unresponsive in his cell and at the now-shuttered Metropolitan Correctional Center in New York City. In one email, a prosecutor involved in Epstein's criminal case complained about a lack of information from the Bureau of Prisons in the critical hours after his death, writing that it was frankly unbelievable that the agency was issuing news releases before telling us basically basic information so that we can relay it to his attorneys who can relay it to his family. In another email, a high-ranking Bureau of Prisons official suggested to the agency's director that reporters must have been paying jail employees for information about Epstein's death because they were reporting details of the agency's failings a spurious accusation that impugned 
the ethics of journalists and the agency's own workers. The documents also provide a fresh window into Epstein's behavior during his 36 days in jail, including his previously unreported attempt to connect by mail with another high-profile uh, pedophile, Larry Nasser, the U.S. gymnastics team doctor convicted of sexually abusing scores of athletes. Epstein's letter to Nasser was found returned to sender in the jail's mailroom weeks after Epstein's death. It appeared he mailed it out and it was returned back to him. The investigator who found the letter told the prison official by email, I'm not sure if I should open it or should we hand it over to anyone. The letter itself was not included among the documents turned over to the AP. The night before Epstein's death, he accused, excused himself from a meeting with his lawyers to make a phone to make a call to his family. According to a memo from a unit manager, Epstein told a jail employee that he was calling his mother, who had been dead for 15 years at that point. Uh, Epstein's death put increased scrutiny on the Bureau of Prisons and led the agency to close the Metropolitan Correctional Center in 2021. It spurred an AP investigation that has uncovered deep, previously unreported problems within the agency, the Justice Department's largest, with more than 30,000 employees, 158,000 inmates, and an $8 billion annual budget. An internal memo, undated but sent after Epstein's death, attributed problems at the jail to seriously reduced staffing levels, improper or lack of training, and follow-up and oversight. The memo also detailed steps the Bureau of Prisons has taken to remedy lapses Epstein's suicide exposed, including requiring supervisors to review surveillance video to ensure that officers made required cell checks. Epstein's lawyer, Martin Weinberg, said people detained at the facility uh, endured medieval conditions of confinement that no American defendant should have been subjected to. It's, a, it's sad, it's tragic that it took this kind of event to finally cause the Bureau of Prisons to close this regrettable institution, Weinberg said in a phone interview. The workers tasked with guarding Epstein the night he killed himself, Tova, Noel, and Michael Thomas, were charged with lying on prison records to make it seem as though they had made their required checks before Epstein was found lifeless. Epstein's cellmate did not return after a court hearing the day before, and prison officials failed to pair another prisoner with him, leaving him alone. During one two-hour period, both appeared to have been asleep, according to uh, their indictment. Noel and Thomas admitted to falsifying the log entries, but avoided prison time under a deal with federal prosecutors. Epstein arrived at the Metropolitan Correctional Center on July 6, 2019. He spent 22 hours in the jail's general population before officials moved him, moved him to the special housing unit due to the significant increase in media coverage and awareness of his notoriety among the inmate population, according to the psychological reconstruction of his death. During an initial health screening, the 66-year-old said he had more than 10 female sexual partners within the previous five years. Medical records showed he was suffering from sleep apnea, constipation, hypertension, lower back pain, and pre-diabetes, and had been previously treated for chlamydia. Epstein did make some attempts to adapt to his jailhouse surroundings, the records show. He signed up for a kosher meal and told prison officials through his lawyer that he wanted permission to exercise outside. Epstein's outlook worsened 
when a judge denied him bail in, on July 18, 2019, raising the prospect that he'd remain locked up until trial. If convicted, he faced up to 45 years in prison. Four days later, Epstein was found on the floor of his cell with a strip of blood, a bedsheet around his neck. Epstein survived that attempted suicide. Epstein expressed frustration with the noise of the jail and his lack of sleep. During his first few weeks at the Metropolitan Correctional Center, Epstein didn't have the sleep apnea breathing apparatus that he used. Then, the toilet in the cell started acting up. The day before Epstein ended his life, a federal judge unsealed about 2,000 pages of documents in a sexual abuse lawsuit against him. That development, prison officials observed, further eroded Epstein's previous elevated status. That fall from grace, a lack of significant inter interpersonal connections, and the idea of potentially spending his life in prison were likely factors contributing to Mr. Epstein's suicide, officials wrote. There was documents shed light on final days of Jeffrey Epstein in prison for Michael Sisek and Michael Balsamo from the Perspective section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, June 3rd, 2023. Now we bring you something from the LA Affairs section of the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, May 28th, 2023. Our love was on a knife edge. The bear brought up memories of my own tattooed chef by Heather Weingold. Why are you crying? My husband asked me. I had just finished watching The Bear, the Hulu show that undoubtedly resonates with chefs, but simultaneously must pain the women who love or loved them. With a tearful smile, I excused myself to the backyard where I lay in the grass and let the unseasonably humid valley weather transport me into another time in my life. I was a grad student in psychology. The guy I started seeing was a French-trained chef. We were doomed from the start, and our mutual masochistic ways should have been the first clue. We were two workaholics with a shared love for tragedy. With books, with mu music, books, and art, we always leaned toward anguish. In my mind, we were Michelin star-crossed lovers in fair Los Angeles. We were Romeo from the South Bay and Juliet from the Valley. We met as most modern couples do, on an app. After the standard surface-level exchanges, we started to talk on the phone. Hours rolled by as our deeply meaningful conversations around beliefs, experiences, hopes, and dreams effortlessly continued. Punctuated by flirtatious overtures and prolonged good nights, we planned for our adventures together while watching Anthony Bourdain episodes across the 405 freeway from each other. The cadence of his voice as he inhaled and exhaled cigarette smoke became a familiar and com uncomforting pause. After a brief phone affair, we met in person over pasta and wine in Brentwood, followed by gin and tonics at my apartment in Westwood. I had suggested a delightful but less than cool family-owned Italian restaurant as a covert litmus test of snobbery. He passed with flying breadsticks, and we talked endlessly about the value of tradition in food. He wanted to open a Southeast Asian fine dining restaurant as a love letter to his family and an F.U. to those people who viewed Asian food as a hangover cure. I loved listening to him muse about his plans. He spoke with intense passion backed up by encyclopedic knowledge. I found his diatribes familiar in the ways previous flings uh, with med students had been, expert and passionate. 
However, unlike those interactions, he valued my opinion and experience related to his world as well as my own. We were equally punch drunk by each other's intellect. We fell in love instantly, but those feelings arrived with a heaping dose of existential dread for me and reactive self-medication for him. My life trajectory was stable and plotted. His was unreliable and in constant motion. I felt stuck in my identity and plan. He offered an unpredictable and exciting alternative. We would regularly dream about moving to Uruguay and opening a bookshop and bar by the beach. Sometimes I would forget that my own goals included a house marriage and children. His did not. The smartest thing I could do would be to marry you. Those were often his parting words as we drifted off to sleep together. However, our Edenic ecosystem was unsustainable and exclusive by design. We rarely socialized with friends or family, and if we did, there was a countdown until we could be home together. Our weekend afternoons felt like a cliché, with me in his old band shirt and him smoking Marlboro Reds on my balcony. We enjoyed Martinez at the bar of Musso and Frank, tipsy walks to Whole Foods and endless strolls around the last bookstore. We enjoyed cooking in my tiny kitchen after a punk soundtrack drive to Nahia Market. The high of our bubble evolved into bliss mixed with expressions of self-destruction and addiction. He had no concept of too much in any aspect of his life. He lived in excess. I was close enough to taste the liquor on his mouth, but emotionally always kept at an arm's length from his self-medicated inner darkness. He disregarded my expertise and ability to understand trauma. I think it hurt too much to believe that someone could actually know him. The tattooed, addicted, transient chief trope, chef trope became a reality that stood in direct opposition to the re uh, regimented stimulus of my life in medicine. We began to crumble in our own way. I felt exploited and like a parent. He felt badgered and controlled. Neither of us was wrong in our assessment of the, of the other. I sat on the couch at a friend's house on a warm night waiting for the home come over text from him. It never arrived. But the following did, I don't love you, I never did, don't write back, forget me. I made my friend read it because I couldn't comprehend the words. The text read like it was written in a, for a foreign language, a message sent from an inner demon. My calls to him went to voicemail. I was blocked. The love I had turned into the most excruciating detox in the blink of an eye. For weeks, I felt psychosomatic sucker punches every time I thought of him. He was detoxing, a fact I didn't find out for many years. That crushing blow of a text was sent from the steps of an inpatient treatment facility that he was too embarrassed to tell me about. Then one day, several years after receiving his text, I got an email from him. I'm sorry. He wrote about making amends and his accomplishments over the decades since our abrupt separation. I responded with a forgiving tone, telling him that I had met my life goals of being married and having a child and a home. He wrote back with a predictable but heartbreaking response. The smartest thing I could have done would have been to marry you. That was Our Love Was on a Knife Edge by Heather, <clears throat> Heather Weingold from the LA Affairs section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, May 28, 2023. The author is a therapist in private practice. She lives in Studio City with her husband and son. Find her on Instagram 
at, at, at we, O-U-E, underscore therapy. LA Affairs chronicles the search for romantic love in all its glorious expressions in the LA area, and we want to hear your true story. We pay $300 for a published essay. Email laaffairs at latimes.com. You can find past columns at latimes.com slash laaffairs. Right, we now move on to some entertainment news. This is from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, May 28, 2023. Discomfort works for him. Musical theater kid Ben Platt embraces the angst in Broadway's parade by Charles McNulty, theater critic. Playing outside comes naturally to Ben Platt, a gay Jewish theater geek born and raised in L.A. He won a Tony Award for his star-making performance in the musical Dear Evan Hansen, creating an authentic stage portrait of a high school adolescent with crippling social anxiety who's thrust into the social media spotlight under false pretenses. And he may win another Tony for his performance in the musical Parade, in which he plays Leo Frank, whose alienation as a Jewish businessman in the Deep South contributed to a real-life tragic miscarriage of justice. But Platt is hardly a loner. Speaking in his pink cave of a dressing room at the Bernard D. Jacobs Theater, where Parade is being revived in a brilliant production directed by Michael Arden, he may not immediately come across as a people person. But all it takes is a few minutes of conversation to understand that this is an artist who gets by and inspired with a little help from his friends. Platt's BFF, as every cinema theater buff knows by now, is Beanie Feldstein, his former classmate and fellow musical theater obsessive at Harvard Westlake. Disciples of the school's late great drama teacher, Ted Walsh, Platt and Feldstein realized their adolescent dreams of becoming Broadway stars while maintaining a bond that continues to creatively fuel them. The two are cast, along with Paul Mescal, in a long-term film project of director Richard Linklater that will bring Stephen Sondheim and George Firth's Merrily We Roll Along to the screen in a unique way. The musical which unfolds over a span of 20 years, is being shot over a period of years to reflect the changing ages of the characters. Three artists whose triangular friendship is tested by commercial success. Theater Camp, another film Platt made with friends, is already completed and coming up this summer. The creative team includes Molly Gordon, who happens to be a childhood friend, filmmaker Lick, Nick Le- uh, Lieberman, a Harvard-Westlake theater chum, and Noah Galvin, who replaced Platt on Broadway in Dear Evan Hansen and is now his fiancée. Platt and Galvin met years ago on a web series filmed uh, in Galvin's mother's apartment. We were like musical theater kids that loved comedy, Platt said. The question of will they or won't they date was hanging in the air. But Platt said that he finally came to his senses and now they've been together for more than three years. A more recent friendship, the one Platt has with his former parade co-star Michaela Diamond, has lightened the load of performing in this harrowing show. Alfred Urey and Jason Robert Brown's 1998 musical tells the story of the 1913 trial of Leo Frank, a factory manager in Atlanta who was accused of raping and murdering a 13-year-old employee. To convince the jury of his guilt, evidence was manipulated and prejudices were played on. After the Georgia governor commuted his sentence to life in prison, Frank was lynched by an anti-Semitic mob. The show was freighted with a painful, all-too-resonant history of white supremacy and murderous hate in America. 
At the first preview, a small group of neo-Nazis demonstrated outside the theater, passing on anti-Semitic material and telling theater-goers that they were about to worship a pedophile. How did these right-wing wackos ever hear about Parade? Surely they're not scrolling through Broadway chat rooms while listening to original cast albums. There's a neo-Nazi set that I think is constantly following this particular story, Platt said. But it's emblematic of this crazy moment in history. These accusations of grooming and the language about Frank being a pedophile and rapist are old tropes, and we're seeing them in a lot of places right now with all the anti-Semitic and anti-trans scapegoating that's going on. Platt was seated in his home away from home, a cramped windowless dressing room. No diva, he chose this modest one because it's nearest to the wing where he makes a lot of entrances and also convenient to the bathroom. I drink so much water. To combat the mousetrap feeling, he had the room painted nailed polished pink and added a blue neon star of David. There's a real heaviness to the show, he said, and I knew I'd be coming here every day eight times a week for months, so I thought, what's the opposite of that energy? This is the first Broadway show that Platt has done since Dear Evan Hansen, and it's been in the works for a while. He has long wa uh, wanted to work with Arden, who's du who directed the, the Deaf West revival of Spring Awakening that came to Broadway in 2015 and jumped at the chance of doing a reading of Parade with him in 2018. The role of Leo Frank had already been on Platt's wish list. Male parts of musical theater are plentiful for young people, he said, but there's a gap that skips to fathers. At 29, Platt is the same age as Frank when he was arrested in 1913. There aren't, many that, there aren't that many roles that are so particular to my age, he said. My number one dream is to play George Surratt in Sunday in the Park with George, but that one isn't hugely age-specific, so there's no rush on that front. Playing Leo has allowed him to incorporate other elements of his identity. His Judaism first and foremost, he said, but also his sense of discomfort and anxiety. Leo, a Brooklynite, by sensibility if not birth, feels out of place among Southerners. In his early number, How Can I Call This Home, Platt conveys with humor and pathos the disdain that Lucille, Leo's stalwart wife, a Southern Jew from a prosperous family, doesn't share but can, in her capacious sympathy, understand. Platt can seem cautious when speaking to the media. His filter was humming during the interview, but there's a sociability to his demeanor, a wary gregariousness. I've tended to play outsiders, Elder Cunningham in the Book of Mormon, Evan Hansen and the Pitch Perfect Ma Magician, Platt said. But that is just how the lot has fallen. But in this instance, if Leo were among his own people in New York, he would have community and not uh, really be an outsider. I played characters who would feel so isolated wherever they were. With Leo, there's a bit of indignation and the frustration of it's not me, it's them, which is an aggression that I've, play, that I've not gotten to play before. Platt was a teenager when he saw the scaled-down Donmar Warehouse revival of Parade at the Mark Tabor Forum in 2009. But it was the original cast recording that was not only uh, his entry point, but also shared Touchstone with Diamond, who was also in the 2018 reading. We loved Carolee Camelo and Brent Carver so much, he said, referencing the show's original Broadway leads. They're very iconic performances to both of us. We grew up listening to them nonstop. The pandemic put any talk of a revival on hold until Arden returned with the possibility of doing a gala production at New York City Center.
I was like, as long as it's me and Michaela, I'd still love to do it, Flat recalled. Parade's week-long staging at City Center was rapturously received, leading to its first Broadway revival. For a show originally more respected than loved, this production is Sweet Redemption. Whenever you're reviving something, you always want to feel like there's a reason to bring it back, Platt said. And that was so clear, politically, obviously. And also just in terms of the piece not getting its due. But I think when Michaela and I really clicked into place in the roles, it felt like that's, that's another reason to do this. At that reading, it was great to hear the show and to remember why it's so great. But what was most memorable to me was my connection with Michaela. Platt attributed the chemistry to more than Diamond's talent. She's such a smart actor and her instrument is fantastic, he said. But on top of that, I think we are just from the same cloth. Not only are we both Jewish, but we have a similar passion for what we're doing in musical theater. It comes from a similar place, so there is so much unspoken understanding and trust. The note of gratitude in Platt's voice when he spoke of Parade was unmistakable. The production's elements have all, have all come together. The acting, the directing, and, crucially important, the timeliness of the story. This was not the experience of the movie version of Dear Evan Hansen, in which Platt, reprising his performance on screen that made him a stage star, was subjected, unfairly in my opinion, to public flogging. The memory of this still smarts. I've tried hard to move forward from it and shape myself as a person separate from it because it was a very heartbreaking thing to happen, Platt said. It was a different time when the film came out and the story wasn't landing. I sort of took the heat uh, given my age and people not wanting to accept me in the role, which is fine. I don't really want, I don't really know what to say except that I'm happy the film exists and I hope time will be kind to it. It wasn't that long ago when Broadway stars were almost precluded from big Hollywood careers. But those days are over. Those days are over, but there are still tricky waters to navigate, even when you're the son of theater, film, and TV producer Mark Platt, who produced the Dear Evan Hansen film. Ben Platt was one of the faces on the cover of New York Magazine's Spotlight on Hollywood Nepo uh, Baby Boom. Musical talent, however, can't be counterfeited. Either you have it or you don't. And Platt not only won a Tony for his performance in Dear Evan Hansen, but also earned a Grammy for the Broadway cast recording and a Daytime Emmy for his performance on the Today Show of You Will Be Found, a rousing number from the musical. As a singer, he has both impressive vocal range and stylistic versatility, but it's his ability to inhabit the emotion of a song to elucidate the psychology lyrically and musically that distinguishes his gift. His gift. Platt, who starred in two seasons of the Ryan Murphy Netflix drama The Politician, enjoys commuting between stage and screen, but live performance is where he feels most alive. His career as a singer-songwriter emerged organically from his musical uh, theater work. He said he initially found his voice as a recording artist playing characters and engaging with audiences. Musical theater, which he said he's been doing since he was four, is more in his gut, but showing up on stage as himself is helping him to be more present and vulnerable as a performer. He's working on a third album and has another film shoot coming up for Merrily We Roll Along. But he said he's still looking for his next big acting project. When asked about his role models, he offered a not surprising eclectic list of names. 
He pointed to Nathan Lane as one of his huge idols and said that when he was coming of age, Gavin Creel was the coolest person in his book for the way he mixed contemporary singing with musical theater performance. Platt also named Norbert Leo Butts, Mandy Patinkin, and Joel Gray as Broadway inspirations and James Taylor, Carol King, and Stevie Wonder as musical influences. Cynthia Erivo, whose star-making performance in the Broadway revival of The Color Purple left an indelible impression on him, has become an invaluable mentor and friend. I was like an empty vessel that got filled with musical theater, he said of his youth in L.A., where he experienced the best of the local theater scene with family and friends. His high school buddies from Harvard Westlake are still among the closest people in his life, personally and professionally. That line for Platt is thin, and he likes it that way. Every time you do a project, you make a, fr a family, he said. You don't necessarily stay close with all 30 cast members from each individual project, but the people who are meant to stay in your life find their way in. That was Discomfort Works for Him by Charles McNulty, theater critic, from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, May 28, 2023. Alright, this one is from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, May 29, 2023. More Marvelous Acts to Come. Alex Borstein on the Mrs. Maisel finale and Commanding Respect by Whitney Freelander. This article contains spoilers for the series finale of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, the Emmy-winning prime video comedy series that concluded its five-season run on Friday, is a story built to fight perception. Miriam Midge Maisel, a New York City housewife played by Rachel Rosnahan, isn't supposed to succeed as a comedian because she doesn't look like someone who would. She's too poised, too pretty, too educated, and when she's hired to be the lady writer for a late-night host in season 5, too female to tell jokes for a living. That Midge got into this line of work only after her so-called perfect marriage fell apart serves to remind us that everything society tells nice young women to do is part of a greater hoax. Oh, so you married well and had kids? Where's the job security in that? The only person who always stood by Midge is Susie Meyerson. Alex Borstein's character is a, is a dogged and eventually self-made talent manager who felt the fearlessness of the show's heroine from the beginning. In the pilot, meandering on stage in a nightgown, Midge was so freshly scored that she bared almost everything, literally and figuratively, to a bunch of drunks at a Greenwich Village comedy club. Susie, who came from zero privilege and says that she wants to show the world that she's not insignificant, saw in Midge uh, something, uh, someone who could speak for a lot of people who are easily dismissed because she walked the walk of a classy broad. So Susie bails the, uh, the, the newly minted divorcee out of jail after she was booked for indecency. Like much of creator Amy Sherman Palladino's other works, including the short-lived but beloved Bunheads and the par paragon of young adult programming Gilmore Girls, it's the devotion of these two women that, have, that uh, these two women have to each other that has always driven Maisel. When Midge and Susie have a falling out this season, their breakup scene plays like a hostile divorce. When Midge sends Susie a message for reconciliation and Susie drops everything to go to her, Nora Ephron couldn't have scripted it better. The series finale includes an homage to the pilot, 
twisting the circumstances so that this time it's Midge bailing Susie out of the slammer and hearing about her heartbreak. In the last scene of Maisel jumps ahead several decades and we see the two women as seniors still gabbing, but now via phone as they are no longer living in the same city. The series closes with a cover of Elvis Costello's Girl Talk by the sister pop duo Tegan and Sarah. Dave Edmonds' recording made the song famous, perhaps a wink to the audience about how Sherman Palladino and Daniel Palladino, the showrunner, write characters who never shut up, but also to emphasize just how borderless the relationship is. I think that's one of the things that's so beautiful about their relationship is that they've both been at their highest highs together and their lowest lows together, Borstein says in a recent video conversation. They both had their hearts trampled on. These were both women that were really hurt, really betrayed by someone before in their lives. Susie's monologue to Midge in the finale after she is sprung from jail is one of the rare times the manager lets her guard down about her personal life and helps explain why she's more comfortable in a life out of the limelight. Preferring to make sartorial choices free of girdles or contouring brushes, Susie assumed other Others who saw her next to her college sweetheart, the sophisticated and well-coit heady Nina Arianda, imagined a woman walking a dog. Borstein, whose other notable works includes voicing matriarch Lois Griffin and other characters on Family Guy and starring in five seasons of the sketch series Mad TV, loves playing a part for which she was completely comfortable in flat shoes and pants and hair back in a ponytail every day. In another twist, the final shots of the show have Midge in pants and Susie in a dress. It's a blue kaftan that's inspired by one, of, by one that Borstein's mother wore in a video that appeared on the actor's Instagram. The series costume designer Donna Zakowska initially thought the video was of Borstein herself. Borstein thinks it's funny when she's not recognized at red carpet events because she looks completely different from her Maisel character. But she's a woman, and one who works in Hollywood at that. This spring, Horstein with her friends, the musicians Salvador Ray and Eric Mills, released the prime video special, Alex Borstein, Corsets and Clown Suits. It starts with a cold open of Borstein in a dressing room, exploring costume choices. She thinks she's going to be forced to wear a sequined get-up with, pasty, with, with, with pasties. As it turns out, that's for the burlesque performer, Rosie Cheeks. Borstein, so we're told, is expected to wear a clown suit. I think that most women are struggling between two or more things, she says of the opening, which questions the notion that actresses can either be funny or pretty, but not both. Women who want to know if they can be these two things. Maybe it's just being funny and a mom, but also being seen as sexual. Maybe it's being seen as a mother and also as a prominent force in the workforce. During the performance, she talks and sometimes sings, frankly, about her complicated divorce from actor Jackson Douglas, her thoughts on modern-day grooming practices, and whether she'd ever feel comfortable dating someone new. In doing this, she speaks for a lot of people who are just done with society's expectations. Of course, obviously, there are certain things you want. You want to look nice, you want to go into a room and slay, so to speak, and you want to command some respect, Borstein says in the interview. But I've let go of the fact of just being perceived that way. I want to actually command respect, 
not just be perceived as someone who should be respected. I want to be respected because I deserve it. That This goes for both her personal and work life. She says this makes a show like Corsets scary because you also want to be cast in other roles and be seen in different ways. But in the end, it's like this one side of me. And you're either going to be interested in my talent or me or not. This ferocity and confidence might be ingrained in Borstein. Her mother and her grandmother survived the Holocaust. The actor spoke of the latter in 2019 when she won her second Emmy for playing Susie on Maisel. In her acceptance speech, she described how her grandmother avoided being shot to death simply by walking away from a crowd rounded up for slaughter. She told women to step out of line when they were pressed to conform. In Corsets, she tells more of her family story. She puts a Brooksian spin on it. At one point, she imagines herself to be the bunker employee tasked with cleaning up Adolf Hitler's and Ava Braun's bodies. Her parents were in the audience cheering her on. Comedy is two things. It's my book, it's persuasion, and it's offense. First, uh, Borstein uh, says now, if you're not pers uh, persuading someone, you're offending them. And if you're not doing either of those, it's probably not funny. She says she, says she doesn't tell stories just for salaciousness. I talk about stories I've heard or stories that have happened to me that, are shocked, that, that, that shocked me. I want to share and get past that shock myself and maybe unpack a little bit of why it's shocking. I need a challenge or at least question the status quo with something Borstein shares with Susie, a character who forced her way into a men's bathhouse this season just to close a deal for a client. While she's there, she also signs the cabaret singer who was performing during her impromptu pitch meeting. Susie loves making people famous even if she herself does not want any attention. There was even debate as to whether she'd show up at her own Friars Club roast. Borstein knows it sounds like semantics, but she thinks there's a difference between Susie's goals and those of her number one client, Midge. I think Midge wanted fame and Susie wanted success, she says after a quick ponder. She goes back to Susie's line in the pilot about wanting to not be insignificant and says that success to Susie is about commanding respect. It's about being able to afford things in your life that you want, the nice things, and not, struggle, not struggling and suffering. Especially because Susie never had children or was in another serious relationship after Hetty. Borstein feels that Susie could have wanted a sense of immortality and to have something she leaves behind. Whereas she says she believes Midge wanted fame, Midge wanted other people's approval and the laughter and the applause. Borstein thinks about this in comparison to her own career. As a public figure, she encouraged, she's encouraged to have a social media presence because it helps her get jobs. She thinks there's more of a blurry line between fame and success now. But she also has two kids and thinks it's super interesting that there's pieces of me left for them, either through stories or through tangible items. Borstein has a giant Tupperware that's labeled Nostalgia, and it's filled with things like Barbie dolls from her earlier career working in advertising, Mattel was a client, and issues of TV Guide that featured her shows. It's interesting little items that in 50 years my kids might open and then sell at a second-hand store or online, she says with a laugh. Because the difference between junk and mementos is all about perception. That was more Marvelous Acts to Come by Whitney Friedlander. 
from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, May 29, 2023. It's called The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, uh, where on Prime Video, when, anytime, rated 16+, plus, may be unsuitable for children under the age of 16. All right, and here's one more from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times for Thursday, June 1st, 2023. It's a family story. The makers of a transparent musical discuss why it's personal and about life being a performance when it needn't be by Ashley Lee. After their 75-year-old parent came out as a transgender woman, Joey and Faith Solomon began to consider their own identities and their family's dynamics in new ways. They had an idea. The very first thing we wanted to do was make a musical Joey recalled to the Times. We actually shot some scenes on an iPhone about our parent transitioning and what it's like to be their children. That effort was shelved when Amazon Studios picked up Transparent, which broke ground as the first scripted television show to enter on a transitioning transgender character and won eight Emmy Awards during its four-season run. Inspired by Joey and Faith's real-life experiences, the half-hour dark comedy chronicled how Mara Pfefferman's decision to transition later in life affected her and the rest of her Los Angeles-based Jewish family. As specific as Transparent is to Mara's journey, it's also about the destructive nature of shameful secrecy in general, wrote Times critic Mary McNamara in her 2014 review of the series premiere. That all, that all the Pfefferman kids are emotionally stalled out in one way or another is not divorced from their father's plight. Presumably, her decision to be true to herself will offer her children a chance to do that as well. The Salome siblings are returning to their original idea nearly 10 years after the series premiered. A transparent musical playing at the Mark Taper Forum through June 25th examines each of the Pfeifferman's epiphanies about the ex expectations long placed upon them, whether by themselves, each other, or society at large. Once Mara makes her announcement, her three adult kids begin to in interrogate their own respective identities. A wife who's possibly perfect, a bachelor's son who's content without commitment, and a daughter who's close with her father. We all live by, act out, and are trapped within versions of a, stand, a standing order, whether it's the roles we play in our family or the clothes we unconsciously wear to signal our identity, said director Tina Landau. This show is all about finding ways to be free of those labels and to be released into more expansive ways of seeing the world and each other. It's a glimpse of a possible world that is more fluid, flexible, kaleidoscopic, and multitudinous. Like the TV series, a transparent musical doesn't shy away from the Pfeifferman's flaws as they try to become truer versions of themselves. So often, characters on television are shinier than normal, their lives just a little bit prettier, said M.J. Kaufman, who co-wrote the musical's book with Joey Soloway. This family was portrayed with warts and all. Everything was gritty and difficult, but it was really wonderful to watch because it was real. We all made sure that ca that, that carried over to this show. The musical still dwells on their intergenerational and intersexual discards, albeit this time with upbeat numbers, disco balls, and dance breaks in the multi-purpose room of their local Jewish community center. And though the series wrapped with a musical film, all of these songs in a transparent musical are written specifically for the stage. 
So much of this show feels like a celebration, a communal party, a prayer, and the audience gets to not just watch it, but bring themselves to it, said composer-lyricist Faith Soloway. That's the best thing about musicals, being with the characters as they live their lives, experiencing their immense pain and their immense joy. Just as Transparent came to prioritize LGBTQ plus representation in front of and behind the camera, its musical iteration features an entirely queer creative team. And more of that, half of the show's cast is transgender, gender non-conforming, or gender expansive. If it feels healing to not constantly have to educate and fight for my trans colleagues to be in the room and play the roles they were written for that were written for them, said Coffin of the project's notable inclusion. It's just we're all here, we're all being given permission to just be artists. It's really beautiful. Mara Pfeifferman, played on screen by Jeffrey Tambor, who won two Emmys for his performance but was later fired off her allegations of sexual misconduct, is portrayed on stage by trans actor Daya Curley. That is seminal, that this seminal role is now being played by a transgender woman is crucial and somewhat corrective for the creators, but also being an invaluable gift for the performer herself. I consider it a gigantic honor and responsibility to play this character, said Curly. I've always been queer, but I have never been around so many trans and non-binary and queer people so consistently creating something together. Because of this show, I feel like I've finally found my chosen family, something I've searched for my whole life. It's changed me forever. Likewise, Adina Verzan has made her own self-discovery in playing Mara's younger child, youngest child, Allie, who questions gender norms after Mara's coming out. I never thought I would play the lead in a musical because it didn't feel like musical theater had a place for me, said Verzan, who was non-binary. Taking center stage and singing songs by myself to this beautiful house of the Mark Taper Forum is so strange and special and affirming. It has me it has made me see that I do have a place and that I'm that I'm being seen the way that I feel, which I often don't know that I am. A transparent musical is making its world premiere amid unprecedented legislative action targeting transgender, non-binary, and gender non-conforming individuals. We're being so misunderstood, said Joey Soloway, who was transgender. Some people in fact that this transness is this hobby that we're choosing to do to annoy people when, in fact, it's who we are. The challenge is just landing the message of this show in a way that makes a difference, added Faith Soloway. Art can change people's minds sometimes, and I hope that people who don't get it but want to get it will have their minds shifted a little bit about what transness is and what the limitations of gender categorization and the binary has done what we've been suffering under the expectations of in the performance of these roles. Regardless, Joey considers the opening of a transparent musical a long-awaited win. As soon as I got the season order for Transparent, the first call I made was asking Faith to come work on the show, Joey recalled. We've always been partners, twins, bros, buddies, besties. And they were really there for me during, their, during the insanity of the television show. Faith and I have been dreaming about having our own musical on Broadway our entire lives. And this show is Faith's music. These little melodies and tunes I've been hearing on our family piano forever. So I'm excited to be there for them during the insanity of this process and help them have their moment.
That was It's a Family Story by Ashley Lee from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times Thursday, June 1st, 2023. It's called A Transparent Musical at the Mark Taper Forum, 135 North Grand Avenue in L.A. 8 p.m. Tuesdays through Fridays, 2.30 and 8 p.m. Saturdays, 1 and 6.30 p.m. Sundays, ends June 25th. Call for exceptions. Tickets are $40 to $129, subject to change. For information, call 213-628-2772 or thecentertheatergroup.org. Running time, 2 hours, 35 minutes, with one intermission. All right, now we have this Israel article, which is also a sports article from a site called thestar.com. And that apparently is the website of a publication of the Toronto Star. And uh, this is called Israel Shocks Brazil to Reach U20 World Cup Semifinals, Italy Outs Colombia, from the Associated Press for Saturday, June 3rd, 2023. Buenos Aires, Argentina. Israel shocked favorite Brazil 3-2 and advanced to the semifinals of the Under-20 World Cup in San Juan on Saturday. The tense encounter featured extra-time goals and two penalty shots wasted by Israel, which will face Uruguay or the United States in the semifinals. Italy also reached the last four in the tournament in Argentina with a 3-1 win against Colombia. Its next rival will be the winner of the match between Nigeria and South Korea on Sunday. After a scoreless first half, Marcos Leonardo uh, netted first for Brazil, and Israel equalized with a header by Anan Kaleli four minutes later. Matthias Nascimento made it 2-1 for Brazil in the first minute of extra time, but Hamza Shibi scored Israel's second two minutes later from close range. Dor David Turgman scored the winner in injury time of the first half of extra time after dribbling past two Brazilian defenders in the penalty box. What an amazing goal, said Israel's Tay Abed. It was a Brazilian-style goal. That's what Dor Turgman can do. He's a fantastic player. He's been one of the best players in the tournament. Israel squandered two penalty kicks in the second half of extra time, which drew out the drama to full time. Israel was much better than Israel. We didn't play our best match, said midfielder Marlon Gomes, who played extra time while injured because Brazil couldn't make substitutions. We couldn't hold our lead in two different opportunities. We could have done better. Hours later, Italy did not suffer as much to overcome Colombia. Cesar Cascade, one of the top players of the tournament, scored with a header in the ninth minute. Tommaso Baldanzi added a second from close range in the 38th minute. Francesco Esposito made it 3-0 in the 46th minute. Colombia reduced its deficit with a Johan Torres goal in the 49th minute from the edge of the box. Italy booked its third consecutive U-20 World Cup semifinal spot. That was Israel shocks Brazil to reach U-20 World Cup semifinal, Italy outs Colombia, from the Associated Press, from thestar.com, for uh, Saturday, June 3rd, 2023. All right, now let's turn to an article or two from the L.A. Jewish Home for May 18th through May 31st, 2023, Volume 1, Number 16, your favorite bi-weekly family read. And we go to a section called Torah Thought, and this is called House of the Women 
by Leanne Fritikin. Our sages say that in the merit of the righteous, women were redeemed from Egypt. Our redemption from Egypt is intimately connected to getting the Torah at Shavuos. Therefore, if we get Torah on the merit of righteous women, mic drop. Growing up in a non-religious home, I thought that in traditional Judaism, women were second-class citizens. Yet in my late 20s, when I started going to people's homes for Shabbat, I not only saw men doing dishes, something my dad never did, but men, but met women who were executives with Ivy League MBAs, Chu Aishid Hales. As my observance increased, I learned about the importance of women through our history, especially at the time of the giving of the Ten Commandments. Moses ascended to God, and Hashem called him from the mountain, saying, So shall you say to the house of Jacob, and relate to the children of Israel, Shemot 19.3. The house of Jacob is famously referring to the women, and the children of Israel famously refers to the men. Three key points il uh, illustrate the importance of women. One, women get Torah first. Many commentaries focus on the importance of women as the foundation of Jewish life. When you build a building, you start with the foundation, then continue accordingly. Two, women get Torah differently. Women get Torah with gentler language, a language of connection and relationships, a language of the heart. Men get Torah with details and rules, a more logical connection. This could explain why men are drawn to sports and women are drawn to anything with interpersonal drama. Three, women are compared to a house, the word for house as the, as the word for daughter, plus the letter Yud, which uh, stands for Hashem's spirituality. The spirituality of the women of the women makes the home. Not only does it make the home, but home is a, the reward of a woman's commitment to God. At the beginning of the time of hardship in Egypt, midwives Shifra and Pua, Yoheved and Miriam were told by Pharaoh to kill the baby boys at their birth. They refused and made up an excuse, and it was because the midwives feared God he, that he made them houses, Shemot 1.21. The reward of a home plays out with, out with our Shavos heroine, Ruth. Naomi didn't use theological arguments to try to dissuade her daughters-in-law from following her. She hit them where it hurt. She told them they had no shot at husbands. What a nice, Jew, what a nice Jewish girl doesn't want a, what nice Jewish girl doesn't want a man. But Ruth followed Naomi regardless. Your people are my people, and your God is my God, Ruth 1.16. We know how the story plays out. Ruth marries Boaz, becoming the great-grandmother of King David and the super-great-grandmother of Moshiach. And the blessing that comes right before their wedding is the blessing of being like the righteous women, Rachel, Leah, and Tamar, who, despite challenging circumstances, did everything in their power to build Jewish homes. As Rabbi Yossi said in Jamara Gitin 52a, I never called my wife my wife, but rather my home. The Gemara in Yevamot 62b says, A man who dwells with no wife lives without joy, without blessing, and without goodness. And if there is no joy, blessing, and goodness, how could one possibly be motivated to serve God or inspire anyone else, students, friends, offspring, to do so either? The sages extended our Gemara about righteous women, not just to the righteous women of Egypt, but to women of all time. And maybe through the detailed learning of men, 
that Judaism lives in the mind, but it's through us, the women, that Judaism stays alive in our hearts. Why women are compared to houses is clear. Why men are compared to children, I'm a smart, not, I'm a smart enough woman to know not to begin to tackle that one. That was House of the Women by Leanne Pritikin from the Torah Thoughts section. Leanne Pritikin is a marketing executive for entertainment clients in Los Angeles and New York. In her free time, she enjoys learning Torah, writing, public speaking, and spending time with family and friends. All right, so now let's read some articles from the Jewish Journal for May 26 to June 1st, 2023 from the My Turn section. This is called Shabbat in the Age of AI by Matthew Schultz. What do we do on Shabbat? Light candles, eat challah, drink wine, pray, etc. stays relatively consistent throughout the generations. What we don't do on Shabbat, however, is in constant flux as different technologies, labors, and tools rise and fall throughout history. Thus, in an age dominated by internet access mediated by screens, Shabbat becomes a time of digital disconnect and the halakha prohibiting the use of electronics becomes the most salient negative commandment of the day. In another age, when agricultural labor dominated the Jewish workweek, the prohibitions on harvesting or caring would have felt equally salient. Today we stand on the cusp of a technological revolution. AI, we are told, will change our society in unpredictable and potentially frightening ways. Engaging with AI will soon come to dominate our work weeks, and so it stands to reason that not engaging with it will come to characterize our Shabbats. What will this look like? The most extreme voices say that AI will prove fatal for mankind. Eliezer Yudkowsky, the main proponent of this doomsday prophecy, explains how he thinks it will go down. A sufficiently intelligent AI won't stay confined to computers for long, he writes in a piece for time. In today's world, you can email DNA strings to laboratories that will produce proteins on demand, allowing an AI initially confined to the Internet to build artificial life forms. If Yudkowsky is, cor is correct, Shabbat in the age of AI would be a day when we cower together in our homes, whispering blessings in the hope that the 3D printed AI be beings don't hear us. Frightening but unlikely. Despite what Yudkowsky says, the technology to print battle-ready living beings doesn't actually exist, and even if it did, one could always unplug the printer. Less extreme than Yudkowsky are those who say that bad actors will use AI to flood the internet with fake images and fake news stories leading to cultural polarization and disintegration. A fake news crisis is nothing we haven't seen before, but AI could scale up the problem to an unimaginable degree. In this disruptive new world, Shabbat would present an opportunity to emerge from an ocean of doubt onto a small island of certainty, a day on which we can again trust our senses. A third prediction is that AI will lead to mass joblessness. This, sadly, has already begun happening in certain industries. If human workers are made redundant in large numbers by AI, we won't just have an economic slash political crisis in our hands, but a spiritual one as well. Without work, we will find ourselves depressed and despondent in a world where we have become nothing but consumers. In this case, Shabbat will be a day of relief for a human race made obsolete by its own handiwork. On one day each week, at the very least, 
we will remember that our ultimate value is not in doing, which has been taken from us, but in being, which can never be taken from us. These are all concerning visions for the future, but what about the best case scenario? In the optional version of the story, AI doesn't steal our work, but rather liberates us from work. Freed at last from the curse of having to toil for our bread, we will lead lives of dignified leisure. I tend to doubt visions of uto utopia, but it is worth considering what Shabbat, which is called a taste of the world to come, would feel like under utopic conditions. Perhaps Shabbat would lose all its meaning. In a world where all hard labor is done by AI, Shabbat might feel redundant. We might even witness an inversion in which life has become so easy that Shabbat feels like the toil, like toil by comparison. I would like to believe, however, that Shabbat will always be meaningful. What dominates us for six days a week cannot dominate us on the seventh. What times the technologies change, while times the technologies change, this fact will remain. Shabbat will be the day we rely solely on human intelligence and converse only with beings made of flesh and blood. It will thus be what the Torah always promised, a remembrance of creation, a time to celebrate our createdness, our humanity, and this non-artificial intelligence who brought us into being. That was Shabbat in the Age of AI by Matthew Schultz from the My Turn section. Matthew Schultz is the author of the essay collection, What Came Before? 2020. Right, and also from the My Turn section, this is called The Jerusalem of the Simple Law by Rabbi Haim Steinmetz. On June 7, 1967, the Israeli army returned Jewish sovereignty to Jerusalem for the first time in 1900 years. And for the last 56 years, this day has been celebrated on the Israeli calendar as Yom Yerushalayim, Jerusalem Day. Yitzhak Rabin, who was then the chief of staff of the Israeli army, visited the Kotel, the western wall of the Temple Mount, that day. Rabin reported that when they reached the western wall, I was breathless. I felt truly shaken and stood there murmuring a prayer for peace. The paratroopers were struggling to reach the wall and touch it. We stood among a tangle of rugged, battle-weary men who were unable to believe their eyes or restrain their emotions. Their eyes were moist with tears, their speech incoherent. The overwhelming desire was to cling to the wall, to hold on to that great moment as long as possible. Rabin's wife Leah would later say that he considered that visit to be the peak moment of his life. Even though he was a secular and stoic uh, career military man, Jerusalem had made, made a dramatic impact on Yitzhak Rabin, as it has on so many others. The question is why? Where does this Jerusalem mystique come from? There's no one answer to this question, and that's part of the mystique. Jerusalem has 70 names, declares the Midrash, and while the Tanakh does have several names for Jerusalem, including Zion, Shalem, and Yevas, the Midrash's point is that Jerusalem is transcendent, and as such, can be seen through multiple perspectives. The study of history sees a city that has transformed the world and is central to three major religions. Extraordinary historical figures have transversed this city. The founders of Judaism lived here. Abraham and Isaac, David and Solomon, Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezra, Ezra and Nehemiah, Judah Maccabee and his sons, Hillel and Shammai, Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Yishmael. And the list goes on and on. 
Jerusalem's influence is not restricted to, Jeru to Judaism. The important personalities of Christianity, Jesus, James, Peter, and Paul, all spent time in Jerusalem as well, and Muslims revere the Temple Mount as the location of Muhammad's night journey. Due to religious influence, Jerusalem has always grabbed the headlines. For hundreds of years, maps put Jerusalem at the center. In the Bunting Clover Leaf Map of 1581, the three continents of Europe, Africa, and Asia are the petals of a clover, with Jerusalem in a circle at the very center of the world. Over 60% of tourists who visit Jerusalem are Christian. They come because of the deep connection they have to its history. Thomas Friedman tells of one such visit to Jerusalem. When American astronaut Neil Armstrong, a devout Christian, visited Israel after his trip to the moon, he was taken on a tour of the old city of Jerusalem by Israeli archaeologist Meyer ben Dov. When they got to the Hulda Gate, which is at the top of the stairs leading to the Temple Mount, Armstrong asked ben Dov whether Jesus had stepped anywhere around here. I told him, look, Jesus was a Jew, recalled ben Dov. Those are the steps that lead to the temple, so he must have walked here many times. Armstrong then asked if these were the original steps, and Ben Dove confirmed that they were. So Jesus, Jesus stepped right here, asked Armstrong. That's right, answered Ben Dove. I have to tell you, Armstrong said to the Israeli archaeologist, I'm more excited stepping on these stones than I was stepping on the moon. If you ask a historian what is special about Jerusalem, they will tell you. It is a place that has changed the world. Wherever you go, you are walking in the footsteps of some of the greatest figures in history. The student of Halakha stands in awe of Jerusalem, a place replete with unique mitzvot commandments. One-third of the Talmud deals with religious laws connected to Jerusalem, including the temple service and the rules of ritual purity. The, uh, Jerusalem was once central to the religious practice of Judaism. What it is forgotten now, the picture found in the Tanakh and rabbinic literature, is dramatic. A thri the thrice year uh, yearly holiday pilgrimage of Aliyah Laragel brought millions of Jews to Jerusalem for the holidays. Josephus, the first century historian, writes of a year when 256,500 Passover sacrifices were brought. He estimates that at least 10 people shared uh, each sacrifice, which works out to over 2.5 million cramming into Jerusalem for Passover. These holidays were a time when people of all classes, countries, and observances came together. The Jewish philosopher Philo of Alexandria described how countless multitudes from countless cities come, some over land, others over sea, from east and west and north and south at every feast. A network of highways facilitated the trip to Jerusalem. These are now being discovered by archaeologists all around Judaism, Jerusalem. Religious visits to Jerusalem extended beyond the holidays. There is another law called Maser Shani, where four out of every seven years, the farmer would bring 10% of the value of his produce to Jerusalem, either in fruit or in cash, and use them to enjoy meals in the holy city. Mystics have a more dramatic vision. For them, Jerusalem is, at, is the center of the universe. The Midrash Tanhuma Kedoshim 10 writes that Jerusalem is where the creation of the world began, or what is sometimes called umbi Umbilicus Mundi, the navel of the world. Inside the temple is the foundation stone from which uh, the world was founded. The Spanish Kabbalist 
Joseph Getachalia uh, takes uh, this step for a step further and explains that from the temple, all of the channels of the divine influence spread out to the world. The divine presence sends blessing to the entire world through the temple. When it comes to Jerusalem, most people are mystics. They visit the hotel and put in a kvitel, a small note of prayers. Everyone does this. Presidents, prime ministers, actors, and rock stars. The mystical view is well-traveled. There is an old joke that was retold by Prime Minister Menachem Begin to President Reagan at a White House state dinner that reflects this view. Begin's joke goes like this. The president brought me into the Oval Office, and he showed me on the table three phones, one white and one blue, and he explained to me, the white, the white is the direct line to Mrs. Thatcher, the blue to President Mitterrand. Then I asked him, what is the red phone? That is a direct line to God. So I asked the president, Mr. President, do you use it often? And the president said, oh no, very rarely. It's very expensive, long distance, so long a distance. And I cannot afford it. I have to cut the budget and laughter. <laughs> so then the president visited Jerusalem and I showed him my office. And there are three phones. One was white, one was blue. And I said, the white is a direct line to President Sadat. By the by, I have such a line and he has such a line. And the other, well, to Mrs. Thatcher. And there is a red phone. And the president asked, what is the red phone for? And I said, this is the direct line to God. So the president asked me, do you use it often? And I say, every day. How can you afford it? And he said, here in Jerusalem, it is being considered a local call. Begin continued on, on another note and, and said, now, Mr. President, Neither of us has direct lines to God. I only believe that God listens to the prayer of a Jew and a Christian and of a Muslim, of every human being. But I have to continue with. But I, if I have to continue with the story, then I will say that when you come, as I do believe, to Jerusalem, I will immediately put at your disposal the red phone, laughter, or uh, on the house, laughter, a local call to the mystic. Jerusalem is different because a call to God from Jerusalem is a local call. I appreciate the perspective of the, the halakist, the mystic and the historian, but I believe there is one perspective that exceeds them all, that of the simple Jew. The simple Jew never left Jerusalem. Shmuel Yosef Agnon spoke to, uh, for them when he said this, in, this, said this in his 1966 Nobel Prize speech. As a result of the historic catastrophe in which Titus of Rome destroyed Jerusalem and Israel was exiled from its land, I was born in one of the cities of the exile. But always I regarded myself as one who was born in Jerusalem. And in 1967, the simple Jew came home. The first time I visited Israel was when I was seven. My grandfather, who was 71 at the time, came with us. It was his first trip to Israel. The look he had on his face when visiting the hotel was the look of a man transformed, a Jew achieving his dream. My grandmother's dream is an ancient dream. Jews have dreamed of Jerusalem from the moment they went into exile. They were driven out of their homeland in 587 BCE. They declared, If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. 
if I do not keep Jerusalem in my mind, even at my happiest hour. Psalm 137. Jews never forgot Jerusalem. We pray about Jerusalem every day. We pray toward Jerusalem every day, and at every wedding, we break a glass to remember Jerusalem. At the Passover Seder, we sing next year in Jerusalem. In Ethiopia, Jewish children would look at the storks migrating northward toward Israel and sing a song. Stork, stork, how is our land? Stork, stork, how is Jerusalem? Stork, stork, give us the world. Give us the word. The simple Jew always dreamed of Jerusalem. It is the love of the simple Jew that makes Yom Yerushalayim special. Moshe Amarav, one of the first soldiers to reach the Kotel on June 7, 1967, said this. I can't help from smiling today when I recall how we searched for the Kotel. There we ran a bunch of panting soldiers wandering around the Temple Mount looking for a huge stone wall. We passed the Mograbim gate, pushing, hurrying, and all of a sudden we are stopped, as if hit by lightning. In front of our eyes stands gray and large, quiet and sad, the Kotel. Little by little, I started getting closer to the Kotel. Slowly, I came closer, an emissary of dead, grandpa, great-grandpa, and all of the generations from all of the, the, the diasporas that didn't make it here, and so they sent me here. Someone said the Shehekiano prayer, and I couldn't say amen. All I could do was put my hand on the rock, and the tears flowing out of my eyes were not mine. They were the tears of all the people of Israel, tears of hope and prayer. This is what the Jerusalem mystique means to me. It is not about history, Halakha, or Kabbalah. It is about the simple Jew and the dreams of the simple of the Jewish people. Fifty-six years ago, the simple Jew could finally go home again. And that is what I celebrate on Yom Yerushalayim. That was The Jerusalem of the Simple Jew by Rabbi Chaim Steinmetz from the My Turn section. Rabbi Chaim Steinmetz is the senior rabbi of Congregation Kehilat Jeshurun in New York. All right, we move on to another article from My Turn section. This is called Rabbis Say President Biden's Plan to Fight Anti-Semitism Should Embrace Embrace." IHRA Definition by Ron Campius, Jewish Telegraphic Agency. More than 550 rabbis are calling for the Biden administration's forthcoming strategy on fighting anti-Semitism to include a definition of anti-Jewish bigotry that has come under debate. The letter was sent as progressive groups are, see are seeking to dissuade the administration from using the definition because they believe it shills legitimate criticism of Israel. The letter's signatories disagree with that assessment. IHRA is critically important for helping to educate and protect our congregants in the face of this rising hate, said the rabbi's letter, which was sent to the White House on Friday via the Conference of Presidents on Major American Jewish Organizations. The acronym IHRA refers to the 2016 Working Definition of Anti-Semitism crafted by the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance. We believe it is imperative that in its na national strategy to combat anti-Semitism, the administration formally embrace the IHRA working definition as the official and only definition used by the United States government and that it be used as a training and educational tool similar to European Union countries' use of the definition in their action plans, the letter said. 
The IHRA document consists of a two-sentence definition of anti-Semitism followed by 11 examples of how anti-Semitism may manifest. Most of those examples concern about speech about Israel that the IHRA defines as anti-Semitic. Israel critics and some progressive supporters of Israel say two of those examples are so broad that they inhibit robust criticism of Israel, applying double standards by requiring of Israel a behavior not expected or demanded of any other democratic nation and denying the Jewish people their right to self-determination, e.g., by claiming that the existence of a state of Israel is a racist endeavor. The letter signatories hail from all three major Jewish denominations, though the list of names includes few leaders of the movements. The Reform Movement has said IHRA is a useful guide, but has opposed using it in legislation. Among the signatories are rabbis known to be close to President Joe Biden, including Michael Beals, a Delaware rabbi who played a prominent role campaigning for the president in 2020, and Rabbi Charlie Citron Walker, the rabbi who protected his congregants during a hostage crisis at a Texas synagogue last year. If the Biden administration does include the IHRA work definition in its plan, it won't exactly be a surprise. Soon after his inauguration, a Biden administration official called the IHRA document an invaluable tool. And one month later, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken said the administration enthusiastically embraces it. The working definition has been endorsed by past administrations of both parties. And in 2019, Donald Trump signed an executive order instructing the Department of Education to consider it uh, when weighing civil rights complaints concerning Jews. It has been adopted in varying forms by a range of national and local governments, universities, professional sports teams, and other bodies. But now, according to Jewish Insider, <clears throat> Progressive groups are asking the Biden administration to forgo including the definition in a soon-to-be-published strategy to combat anti-Semitism. Biden said at an event on Tuesday that the strategy would have 100 recommendations for action, and insiders say it may be published as soon as next week. A number of conditions have proposed alternative definitions that contain more limited definitions of when anti-Israel speech is anti-Semitic. The letter from the rabbis does not mention Israel, but cautions against adopting a definition other than IHRA's. We believe the adoption of any definition less comprehensive than the IHRA definition would be a step backwards for this administration and make our work on the ground significantly harder, it said. In a meeting this week with members of the press, Biden's lead anti-Semitism monitor, Deborah Lipstadt, who was a member of the administration's anti-Semitism task force, would not say if the IHRA definition would make it into the strategy. She said it was effective and helped her in her work, but added, I'm not going to preempt what the White House is going to say or not say. William Daroff, the CEO of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, said the notion that the IHRA working definition inhibits Israel criticism has been belied by the slew of people critical of Israeli policy who have not been muted because of the IHRA definition. Daraf pointed in particular to widespread criticism of the Israeli government's plan to weaken the judiciary, which critics have said would undercut Israel's democracy and remove a curb on human rights abuses.
A comprehensive report on anti-Semitism might not be comprehensive without defining anti-Semitism, Darov told the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, and might undercut American efforts to combat anti-Semitism abroad by weakening the clear importance of the IHRA definition. That was rabbis say Biden's plan to fight anti-Semitism should embrace IHRA definition by Ron Campius, Jewish Telegraphic Agency, from the My Turn section. Okay, we move on now to Rosner's Domain from Israel section, and this is called Ultra-Orthodoxy Tel Aviv Style by Shamul Rosner. On the street where I live in Tel Aviv, there is a yeshiva. Young guys in black hats walk around, visit the playground, drag suitcases on wheels, delight us with great singing on holidays. As far as I can see, there is no tension between the neighbors, yeshiva youngsters, and mostly secular residents. And yet, whenever I have passed by it in the last few months, I look to the sides to see if protesters have already come, if the yeshiva has already been targeted. There is no reason to protest against the yeshiva or to harass its students, except one, the growing desire of many Israelis for separation. This is evident in a battle that is taking place against another yeshiva in Tel Aviv, Ma'ale Eliyahu. City Hall de, uh, decided to re-examine the approval given to the yeshiva to erect a large building. Protesters against the yeshiva makes themselves visible. There is a campaign for and against in which the main arguments can be summarized as follows. On the one hand, Tel Aviv is open to everyone and it's a pluralistic city, so why not yet let a yeshiva operate and flourish without interruption? On the other hand, Tel Aviv is mostly secular and liberal, and religious orthodox leaders would, would not accept secular liberal institutions in their own residential areas should not expect too much hospitality in Tel Aviv. This is a debate similar in nature to another very familiar debate. Whether and to what extent democracy should allow the expression of extreme ideas that undermine democracy itself. In the U.S., where unrestricted freedom of speech is the norm, Racists or anarchists are tolerated. In Israel, as in many other democracies, the norm is different. Israel is a democracy that has chosen to prevent, at least in theory, the flourishing of ideas that undermine democracy. It follows the concept of defensive democracy. True, a defensive democracy limits the freedom of expression, which is the lifeblood of democracy. But sometimes proponents of defensive democracy say, one has to balance different values to reach a stable equilibrium. Freedom of expression can be prevented if or when it threatens democracy itself, and hence, in the long run, threatens free expression itself. Back to Tel Aviv. Supporters of the yeshiva make the argument of freedom. Opponents of the yeshiva make the argument of defensiveness. Both claims are colored by the politics of the last few months, the politics of separation. The yeshiva was established decades ago, and no one seemed to care, but now its presence is becoming an issue. The yeshiva is a victim of a tense situation. Who's right and who's wrong? This is not an easy question. On the one hand, it is easy to sympathize with yeshiva students who did not sin. On the other hand, it is simply it, it is impossible to expect that Tel Aviv will happily host an institution whose founder's uh, intention is to alter the city's character and spirit. Then again, how can, we all, how, how can we call the city pluralistic if it does not allow a peaceful Torah study? Then again, why can't seculars behave like the Orthodox and strive to have a cohesive public sphere?
In the Orthodox community, influencers and leaders rose up to defend the yeshiva. But ask yourself, would they accept a pride parade in Haredi Eilad? Would they allow the establishment of a school for athleticism in Beitar Elite? Would they allow anti-religious activists to establish a community in Afra? The answers are no, no, and no. They would not agree. Thus, the argument made by yeshiva proponents is problematic. They want Tel Aviv to be open to everyone, while their neighbors and, everyone, and even their, their cities will not be open to everyone. And in Tel Aviv, which was needed always to open which was, was in, which was indeed always open to everyone, new winds are blowing. To sum them up, there was a growing feeling that perhaps it is time for the liberal sector to become, well, a, a true, well-defined, and well-defended sector. Maybe Tel Aviv should also be ultra-Orthodox in its own way. To be a city that is a little less ideologically diverse, a little more oriented to the needs of those who identify with the basic values of the majority of its residents. And, of course, it is complex when it comes to a large central city, which is not homogenous at the moment, but the strategic goal is important. Consciously, consciously or unconsciously, this is what is reflected in the battle over the yeshiva in Tel Aviv. The aspiration for a trend of fences and separation in recent polls, a large majority of Israeli seculars say they do not want to live with ultra-Orthodox groups in the same neighborhood. In all, about 60% of Israeli Jews believe that separate neighborhoods are, uh, for secular, religious, and ultra-Orthodox are preferable to mixed neighborhoods. There is a short distance from neighborhoods to cities, and if, the spaces are sep is sep and if the space is separated, maybe there is no reason for a conservative yeshiva whose stated goal is strengthening spirituality and the values in the city to have a place in the heart of Tel Aviv. That was Ultra-Orthodoxy Tel Aviv Style by Shemuel Rosner. Here's a little something extra from the Rosner's Domain from Israel section. Something I wrote in Hebrew, also by Shemuel Rosner. Here's what I wrote as I criticized and also tried to explain why an Israeli TV anchor didn't say the Haredim are bloodsuckers because of their budgetary demands. Israeli Jews have lost their sensitivity to anti-Semitism. They shout anti-Semitism when it suits them when someone criticizes them or Israel, rightly or wrongly, but they no longer have a real sensitivity to this phenomenon. Life in a majority Jewish state has worn out their senses. The Zionist rhetoric has worn out their senses. This should also be said. At the heart of the Zionist uh, idea nestles a rejection of the old Jew, and there is also the internalization of negative feelings and negative stereotypes concerning him. Almost naturally, it is attached to the Jews whose appearance is the most diasporic, that is, the ultra-Orthodox. That's something I wrote in Hebrew. This is a week's numbers. Jerusalem is important. It is also poor, conservative, and complicated. Not all Israelis see the features as a plus. Would you like to live in Jerusalem? 62% said no, 30% said yes, 8% said don't know. That's a week numbers. This is a reader's response. Deborah Levy asks, I just heard that Israel has a two-year budget rather than an annual budget. Is that normal? Answer, normal for Israel. It is a trick aimed at stabilizing the political system. Passing a budget is a political obstacle for all governments. And that's a reader's response. Those are all from Rosner's domain from Israel. 
Shmuel Rosner is Senior Political Editor. For more analysis of Israeli and international politics, visit Rosner's Domain at jewishjournal.com slash Rosner's Domain. Okay, we go on now to the Table for Five Weekly Parsha, One Verse, Five Voices section, edited by Salvador Litvak, the Accidental Talmudist. Shavuot Edition Moses came and summoned the elders of Israel and placed before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people replied in unison and said, All that the Lord has spoken we shall do. And Moses took the words of the people back to the Lord. Exodus 19, 7-8, Torah reading for Shavuot. Cantor Michelle Bider Stone, Temple Beth Am, Los Angeles. Shavuot is one of the three pilgrimage holidays of the Torah, along with Passover and Sukkot. Like Passover and Sukkot, it is an agricultural holiday. Unlike the other two, the Torah does not connect it to any historical event. The Torah has no knowledge of Shavuot being associated with the giving of the Torah on Mount Sinai. This significance was added centuries later by the rabbis. In fact, the Torah provides no holidays or mitzvot requiring us to commemorate Torah revelation. We have daily and weekly rituals, not to mention Passover, to remember the exodus from Egypt. Shouldn't the Torah make sure that we give the same attention, if not more, to the gift of Torah? Rav Menachem Leibdag posits that the Torah may implicitly be sending a message that the revelation of Torah at Mount Sinai shouldn't be an historical event, to be remembered, but rather something to be experienced continuously. Every generation should feel as though God speaks directly to them, not just once, but every single day. This is what the rabbis achieved when they connected Shavuot to Mount Sinai. We are asked to go beyond remembering history. On Shavuot, we try to experience the giving of Torah firsthand, to feel as though we ourselves are standing at Sinai and are part of the ongoing process of revelation. Torah is given to us again anew. When we, find, when we study and interpret text, we become the active participants in the dialogue of our tradition, adding, to, adding our voices to the chain. Rabbi Benjamin Bleck, Professor of Talmud Yeshiva University Of all the meetings between Moses and God, this may be the most remarkable, as well as the most incomprehensible. The Israelites had just made a commitment. They agreed to fully accept the Torah, and Moses took the words of the people back to the Lord. I can just picture in my mind the joy with which Moses shared the good news with the Almighty, but it simply doesn't make sense. Did Moses actually have to inform God what happened? Did God have to hear the news secondhand? Our comprehension of the Almighty assumes his total knowledge of everything that happens here on earth. He sees all, he hears all, he knows all. Why did Moses have to make sure that the Almighty finally found out that the Jews unanimously voted yes? Obviously, we have misread the text. Moses did not come to inform the Lord. He came to rejoice with him. Prior to this moment, there had been many miracles, miracles performed by God. The splitting of the sea as well as the previous ten plagues were acts that defied laws of nature. But godly miracles are only called miracles because they are beyond human capabilities. A much greater miracle, one that deserves true awe and respect, is a superhuman act achieved by human beings, people with freedom of will whose commitment, vision, and dedication permit them to demonstrate personal greatness. 
That was the greatest miracle of Sinai, and the one we hope someday to replicate. A wholly unified nation choosing to live by the values of the Torah. Rabbi Scott and Bolton, Congregation or Zora. In unison, they sang, not uniformly. A dilemma in our time is moral absolutism. More people are becoming fundamentalists. Some believe their moral outlooks are the only ones that matter. However, revelation and religion from a human point of view are best perceived, deciphered, and understood as having multiple facets of divinity, godliness, and pathways back to the mountaintop. But wait, did not God's voice go out and kill the idolaters? Rabbi Tanhuma said of the voice that Exodus reports, The Lord has spoken, that it went out with two frequencies. One shook, vibrated, and destroyed the idolaters and their nations. The other was compassionate, covenantal, and instructive. And what about tra Tractate Shabbat that describes God holding Mount Sinai over our heads? If you will not accept Torah, here will be your grave. One could learn from such texts to be a moral bully. But it's an exhortation of, uh, about a good and righteous way forward. There is no license to start missionary work at airports and in the subways. But there is no license to kill. The Midrash in Shemot Rabbah goes on to say that each and every soul receives Torah according to his or own coach strength. What a Jew does to bring the holiness of Torah into action and to create a world of holiness is their business. While the how and the why might differ, we are unified in those endeavors. Rabbi Pinchas Winston, 36.org Amazingly, Torah is accessible and we are meant to become very familiar with it to learn it relentlessly in pursuit of ultimate truth. Torah is all we should really need, as the Talmud says. Had the Jewish nation not sinned, they would have only received the five books of the Torah and the book of Joshua, which deals with the division of Yeretz Yisrael. The Talmud is saying that, it, that had the Jewish people not sinned with the golden calf, we would only have needed the five books of Moses and the book of Joshua. This is because there is more than one level of Torah, something called Torah's Atzilas, the level of Torah for the Messianic era. It was the level we were, we were about to receive after saying, all that the Lord has spoken we shall do. That was the level of the first tablets that Moses brought, broke. Torah's Beria is a level of Torah we presently live by, which contains 613 mitzvahs and which has spawned countless other works to explain how, properly, how to properly fulfill them. Torah's Azilus emanates from a higher spiritual realm where only two mitzvahs are necessary. I am God, your God, and there can be oh, no other gods beside me. The first two Ten Commandments. What happened to the other 611? They're still there, just incorporated in these two primary mitzvahs. On this level of consciousness, they do not need to be itemized since a person will automatically do them by fulfilling these two mitzvahs. Kylie Ora Lobel, Community Editor, Jewish Journal. The more I follow the Torah, the happier I am. It's just a fact. As much as I try to resist it, I'm looking at you, Yetzir Hara, I've learned that following the commandments as closely as I can has resulted in me having a much more joyful and fulfilling life. I grew up without any religion and became an atheist when I was 12. I didn't believe in God and thought I was in control of everything 
and that there was no bigger plan for me. But when my boyfriend, now a husband, Daniel, took me to a Chabad for a Friday night dinner, everything changed, and it led me down the path to conversion. But even after I dipped in the mikvah and officially became a Jew, my Jewish journey didn't stop there. Every year I make goals to take on more and more, learn how to pray in Hebrew, study the Torah every week, focus on Shalom Bayit, and the more I do, the better I feel. The better my life gets. The Jewish people were resistant to the Torah at first. They didn't recognize that the Torah was the ultimate guidebook for, the, for life, the ultimate truth. Their Yetzir Haras took over. Once they did realize the holy power of the Torah, their attitudes changed. They accepted the Torah. They accepted God in their lives. This Shavuot, I encourage you to accept the Torah all over again and rededicate yourself to living Jewishly. You'll see the monumentally positive effect it has on your life. That was uh, the Table for Five Weekly Parsha One Verse Five Voices section, edited by Salvador Litvak, Accidental Talmudist, and it was Shavuot edition, Exodus 19:7-8, Torah reading for Shavuot. Now here's a new section called the Campus Watch section by Aaron Bandler. And this first one is called From the River to the Sea, Graffiti at UCSB Habad. Graffiti reading From the River to the Sea, Palestine Will Be Free was found on May 19 outside of the Habad at UC Santa Barbara. Chabad UCSB co-director Rabbi Gershon Klein tweeted out a photo and video of the graffiti saying they found it just before their mega Shabbat that had 800 students in attendance. On May 22nd, Klein tweeted out a photo of the, Chabad to, of the Chabad's board's co-presidents redecorating the ally where the graffiti was found. No more graffiti, Klein tweeted. Anti-Defamation League uh, Santa Barbara Tri-Counties Regional Director Daniel A. Maisel said in the statement that they strongly condemned this attack and potentially anti-Semitic hate crime, calling it an unconscionable act of intimidation. This language, which has long been used by anti-Israel actors, can ostracize and intimidate members of the Jewish com and pro-Israel community, Maisel added. We hope all community members will unite to condemn this act of anti-Semitism. That was from the River to the Sea, Graffiti at UCSB Habad. This next one is called Teen Violates Probation After Being Sentenced for Stealing, Burning Israeli Flags in Front of Montreal Jewish Day School. A teenager reportedly violated his probation after being sentenced for stealing and burning Israeli flags in front of a Jewish day school in Montreal in April. City News Montreal reported that the teenager, an unidentified 16-year-old male, received his one-year probation on May 15. Under the terms of the sentence, the teenager is prohibited from posting anything about the Jewish Day School, which City News Montreal identified as the Hebrew Foundation School, as well as anything related to Israel. The next day, the teenager reportedly posted to social media, finally released on probation. They thought they had finished and silenced me, but I'm back and stronger than ever. Thanks to those who supported me, and especially uh, Don't Forget Palestine. My voice alone is worthless, but together we moved the city and we disturbed them. Our victory soon. On May 18, a court enacted a stricter probation sentence barring the teenager from posting to social media entirely. That was teen violates probation after being sentenced for stealing, burning Israeli flags in front of Montreal Jewish Day School. This next one is called Pro-Palestinian Group called Calls for CUNY to Cut All Ties with Zionist Pro-Israel Groups. The pro-Palestinian group within our lifetime 
is urging the city of University of New York to cut all ties with Zionist pro-Israel groups on and off campus after CUNY School of Law took down video of a recent anti-Israel commencement speaker. WOL tweeted on May 21st, this past week CUNY Law gave in to Zionist pressure and took down the video of the graduation ceremony to censor Fatima Muhammad's message of social justice in support of Palestine and the global struggle against racism and oppression. Muhammad, CUNY Law's com commencement speaker this year, is a member of CUNY Law's Students for Justice in Palestine chapter. The Jewish Community Relations Council of New York lampooned Mohammed's speech for its incendiary anti-Israel rhetoric and Anti-Defamation League, New York, New Jersey, derided it as appalling per the Times of Israel. TOI also noted that the commencement ceremony was closed to the press and a YouTube video of the event was made non-public. Additionally, WOL accused CUNY law of taking down the video of Nerdini Kiswani's 2022 commencement address. Kiswani, who heads WOL, excoriated Zionists and condemned normalizing trips to Israel, according to the ADL. WOL also issued a series of demands to CUNY, including releasing the full unedited videos of Muhammad and Kiswani's commencement speeches, issuing a solidarity statement with those fighting censorship, and to blacklist websites that target CUNY students like Canary Mission. Another demand was to cut all ties with Zionist pro-Israel groups on and off campus. That was pro-Palestinian group calls for CUNY to cut all ties with Zionist pro-Palestinian groups. This next one is called Muhammad El-Kurd Receives Calgary Peace Prize. Anti-Israel activist Muhammad El-Kurd received the Calgary Peace Prize on May 18 from a committee chaired by a professor at Mount Royal University. The ADL has described the book and social media of El-Kurd, the Palestine correspondent for the nation, as being unvarnished, vicious anti-Semitism. El-Kurd has accused Israelis of eating the organs of Palestinians and of having, and of having, uh, and of having a particular lust for Palestinian blood, the ADL said about El-Kurd. He has compared Israelis to Nazis, negated the historic Jewish connection to the land of Israel, and vilified Zionism and Zionists. B'nai B'rith Canada received a letter from MRU Dean of Faculty of the Arts Jennifer Pettit saying the committee does not reflect the views of the university. The Calgary Jewish Federation, however, doesn't think the university has done enough to distance itself from the award. That was Mohammed El-Kurd receives Calgary Peace Prize, and this last one is called Swastika found in M.A. school bathroom. A swastika was found scrawled with chocolate or a similar substance in the boys' bathroom of a high school in Newton, Massachusetts on May 18. Boston 25 News reported that Newton South High School principal Tamara Strauss wrote in a letter to parents that there was anger and disappointment over the swastikas. I want to assure you that, as, that we as a school and district are deeply dedicated to addressing hate and discrimination issues and educating our students to stand up against hate, she added. South will always strive to be a place where all feel seen, heard, and supported. Local police are investigating the matter. Now, a swastika found in MA school uh, bathroom, and those are from Campus Watch by Aaron Bandler. All right, and here's something from the community section. ICAN hosts inaugural LAUSD Summit on Anti-Semitism by Aaron Bandler. 
the Israeli-American Civic Action Network hosted the first-ever summit with the Los Angeles Unified School District addressing rising anti-Semitism in the state. The summit, held virtually on May 15, featured Anti-Defamation League Los Angeles Senior Associate Regional Director Matthew Friedman reviewing data from the ADL's May 9 report. The report found 3,697 anti-Semitic incidents in 2022, the highest ever recorded by the ADL, a stark increase from the 751 incidents that were documented in 2013. In California, the ADL documented 518 incidents in 2022, a 41% increase from the 367 recorded the year before. Such incidents included the white supremacist organization Goyim Defense League's propaganda campaign, banners draped over freeways declaring that Kanye was right, and flyers dropped on people's porches blaming Jews for the COVID agenda. Words escalate, Friedman warned, pointing to the Pico Robertson shootings in February as an example since the shooter claimed to have been influenced by the GDL flyers. Simon Simon Weisenthal Center Associate Dean and Director of Global Social Action Agenda, Rabbi Abraham Cooper, further explained the severity of the problem, citing FBI Director Christopher Wray's figures that 63% of hate crimes targeting religious identity were against Jews, who comprise only 2.4% of the American population. It's an unacceptable situation, Cooper said. Jennifer an LAUSD parent and educator who did not provide her last name, told those logged into the summit that she is a mass shooting survivor, as she was at the North Valley Jewish Community Center targeted by a white supremacist with an Uzi submachine gun in 1999. This changed my life forever, to say the least, she said. I am worried about the anti-Semitism that is happening in our schools. As an educator, She recalled being yelled at by an administrator for leaving early to observe Yom Kippur despite informing the administrator about her plans beforehand. Jennifer's two daughters have also been subjected to anti-Semitism. Her younger daughter was subjected to cyberbullying and told she was a cheap Jew and no one liked her because she was a Jew. Her older daughter was asked by her teachers if she was Jewish with negative connotation due to her last name, Jennifer added. My daughter has cried to me on numerous occasions asking, why do they hate me because I'm Jewish, she said. It's not okay that this is still happening in our schools in 2023. LAUSD officials spoke during the summit about their commitment to fighting rising anti-Semitism. Superintendent Alberto M. Carvalho said that while schools represent a manifestation of the scourge of anti-Semitism, Schools are also the perfect solution to combat combating hate. Education is the solution, and education must continue to be the solution to deal with anti-Semitic actions that unfortunately target students and adults in our community, Cavajo said. We want to understand the root causes and the manifestations of anti-Semitism so we can bring about educational solutions for these problems. He pledged to make LAUSD a bastion of safe havens to protect students from hate. Cecilie Maillard Cruz, who heads the United Teachers Los Angeles Union, declared that more than 35,000 union members are standing up to combat hate, injustice, and anti-Semitism in our schools and in our workplaces and in our classrooms. This type of hatred has no business in our schools and in our workplaces and in the world. So it was going to be up to us working together to end these kind kind of practices, Maillard Cruz said. 
LAUSD board member Nick Valvoin, who is Jewish, explained to viewers that most hatred stems from fear, and fear comes from a lack of understanding. He recalled that when he taught at a school in Watts, most of the students there hadn't met a Jew before, which Melvoin said showed the importance of forging bonds with other communities. As a board member, Melvoin said he worked with the Jewish Federation and others to end a biased pro-BDSD sal uh, salary point class for educators and to establish better vetting procedures to prevent such rhetoric from entering the curriculum. Melvoin was also among lobbying uh, for the defeat of a pro-BDS resolution in UTLA. H said that the resolution really awoke a sleeping giant among Jewish educators and others, realizing that we can't sleep on our laurels. Melvoin called for a more holistic ethnic studies curriculum that places the Jewish experience, among others, as a persecuted minority, as well as a better reporting mechanism to help fight anti-Semitism. By continuing to spread awareness and understanding about the Jewish faith, I know we can create a future where the threat of anti-Semitism is a distant memory, Melvoin said. Judy Chiasson, coordinator for LAUSD's Human Relations, Diversity and Equity Department, told the summit that if their child faced a hate incident at school, the best thing parents can do is simply listen and learn what their child experienced at school. When reporting the incident to the school, Parents need to be as factual as possible, Chiasun said, as saying my child was bullied isn't effective as saying their child was pushed during lunch and called a slur. The more factual information you can give, the better equipped they're going to be to respond to that allegation, Chiasun said. During the Q&A section, Melvoin, Chiasun, and LAUSD Board of Education Vice President Scott M. Schmerlson were asked about the possibility of the board adopting the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition of anti-Semitism. Melvon replied that this summit is a good first step toward that goal and that the community can provide insight on their lived experiences. Earlier in the summit, Cooper advocated for the adoption of IHRA, saying that he has heard officials from various universities lament him that they don't have a definition to provide bias training and identity, identify acts of hate. He added that he hoped the summit would help create momentum for IHRA to be adopted. Cooper also said that the community shouldn't take it for granted that the LAUSD superintendent and UTLA head were uh, at the summit since the community is often at loggerheads with people in power across the country. Other speakers included Jewish Federation of Greater Los Angeles Senior Vice President of Community Engagement jo Joanna Mendelson. LAUSD board member Kelly Gonias, LAUSD Association of Jewish Educators Vice President and Fairfax High School Assistant Principal Lisa Regan de Ross, ICANN Chairman and CEO Dillian Hosier moderated the summit. That was ICAN Host's inaugural LAUSD Summit on Anti-Semitism by Aaron Bandler from the Community Section. Let's go now to the section uh, Bigel Torah from Rabbi Nicole Gusick, and this is called The Happiest Place on Earth. Disneyland is known as the happiest place on Earth, and I'm starting to understand why. Happiness is a fleeting temporary emotion. Imagine the rapid high experience turning during a roller coaster ride. The thrilling turns and exhilaration felt as a fear is conquered. Yet the ride ends almost as soon as it begins. There is an immediate need to either go on the ride again or try out a new one. 
the happiness comes and the happiness goes. As you enter the Disneyland Park, there is a caution to leave today behind. Unlike the nostalgia of the past and fantasy of the future, today comes with responsibility, realistic expectations, and an inability to hide under the covers. Today arrives whether we like it or not. But the embracing of today allows for something better than fleeting happiness. Embracing today allows for the building of reservoirs of joy, compassion, and strength. Today is living through disappointments, loving through frustration, and growing through obstacles, opening the eyes to wonder, awe, beauty, and blessing. It is the holding of today that enables us to be present and engaged in God's glorious world. Mode ane lefaneha, dear God, let us not leave today behind as we look towards the past or the future. Be present, be mindful, be grateful for what these hours offer. It will be how we live today that shapes how we experience tomorrow. Disneyland may be the happiest place on earth, but today is much more. A gift from God filled with endless possibilities. Shabbat Shalom. That was The Happiest Place on Earth by Rabbi Nicole Gusick from the Big Old Torah section. Rabbi Nicole Gusick is a rabbi at Sinai Temple. Alright, let's read some ads from the Jewish Journal for May 26 to June 1, 2023. With this one, Find Your Inner Peace. Welcome to Friday Light, a campaign uh, encouraging Jewish women and girls to illuminate the world with the light of Shabbat. By observing this special tradition each and every Friday night, you will not only bask in a personal moment of inner peace, but also connect to a global community of Jewish women who together hold the power to bring light to the world. Join us, won't you? Friday night, FridayLight.org Visit FridayLight.org to get uh, candle lighting times for your location, share your feelings, invite a friend to join and more. And we have another one right here. In fact, we're charmed. The design is elegant, grounds pristine, interior sublime, and amenities top-notch. But it's the residents who give the Vario its distinctive, exceptional personality. Come spend time with us to see just how marvelous life can be. Schedule a visit. 818-877-7022 or TheVarial.com. The Varial, Inspired Senior Living, 6233 Varial Avenue in Woodland Hills, 91367. Website is TheVarial.com. Independent Living, Assisted Living, and Memory Care. Managed by Momentum Senior Living. License number 19585024. And we have this one right here. Three views are better than one. Every morning, we serve up, serve up the hottest issues of the day with three fresh takes to open minds. Jewish Journal Roundtable. Hot issues, fresh takes. Sign up now to get the email lose newsletter at roundtable at jewishjournal.com. And we have a, another one right here. Hillside Mortuary providing compassionate and professional mortuary services to families of all faiths. Hillside is built upon a foundation of relationships enabling us to assist in coordinating and expediting arrangements. www.hillsidememorial.org slash advanced planning. For more information about our online floral service, please visit www.hillsidememorial.org slash floral service. Hillside Memorial Park and Mortuary, Los Angeles, FD number 13. 
And, and here's something, uh, last one. Jewish Journal Marketplace to reserve your marketplace ad. Space call 213-368-1661. Space reservation and ad material deadlines are 12 p.m. on Thursday. And ladies and gentlemen, it looks like we're about to end another edition of Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. So for everything that is happening with us Jewish folk right here in the city, the state, the nation, Israel, and the world, find it all right here. Until next time, everybody, this is your reader and host, Mark Braun. Shalom and peace.